Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligned in our values of inclusivity and diversity within the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members and empowers them with the skills necessary to excel in their legal career. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode, another week in the national lockdown life. Some of you may be living on your own, others with a significant other, But if you're like me, then you've been stuck with your family since the start of the pandemic. They say that in times of crisis, it's important to be with your loved ones. But that's so cliche. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my family. But like all things, I love them in moderation. A couple weeks for Christmas or the summer, the occasional family trip. But 10 months into forced cohabitation, and it brings a whole cycle of love-hate family feuds. Luckily, here to sort out my family issues and more this week is Scott Halliday, Family Law Associate Solicitor at Irwin Mitchell and University of York Law Graduate. In this episode, we discuss the life of a family lawyer, from the personal, impactful, yet volatile nature of the work, to the resulting close and unique bonds with the clients. We also take a moment to discuss Scott's feedback of his practice into the theoretical, through his part-time lectureships and his academic discussions on the emergence of modern family law. But it's not all about the family. We also have a very candid conversation about the value of an LLM to your professional career and bringing one's identity to the legal profession, particularly the importance of being authentic. So without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa and enjoy the show. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Very good. You know, in, in COVID times, as, as good as one can be. <laughs> so before we begin, for our listeners out there, if you can give us a short introduction about yourself. Yes, great. So um, my name is Scott Holliday. I'm an Associate Family Law Solicitor at Erwin Mitchell. Um, I am based predominantly in London and Leeds. My work is quite wide in terms of scope. I tend to deal with most private family law issues, really, with a particular focus on international divorce and financial issues and international children or abduction, relocation of children and whatnot. In addition to that, I do sit on the Law Society's LGBT plus National Committee in Chancery Lane. I've done that since March 2019. I also lecture and write papers Admittedly, I'm saying that with a bit of reservation because I haven't written a paper for a little bit of time now. I certainly did write a lot of papers in 2018, 2019, that it obviously depends on the climate and the legal issues at the time. But I certainly did do quite a lot of writing around same-sex family law, uh, civil partnership law reform around heterosexual civil partnerships. And I'm keen to continue to do that when pertinent legal issues come up that I have expertise in. 
but that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Quite a big nutshell, if I say so myself, a jack of all trades, and I'm sure we'll get into all those different aspects. But starting off, what is family law? My conception of family law has always been about what I've seen on TV and what I've talked in passing, you know, divorce issues and child custody. But here you're talking about international divorces and finances, child abduction. It seems like so much more than meets the naked eye. I would agree with that. I only sometimes wish it were a little bit more like it were on the TV, but sadly, it's not quite like that. I guess from my point of view, broad brush, you can be a family lawyer in private law, so disputes between parents, and private divorce and financial resolution. So private disputes through divorce and and resolution of financial issues, if you like, privately on divorce or dissolution. I guess the other side of the coin is public law, so care proceedings where local authorities are involved with children. I've never done that type of work in truth. So for me, being a family lawyer is pretty much any children lawyer suit privately being litigated or disputed between parents. The usual types of cases in that regard are when parents are separating, whether that's through divorce or dissolution, or possibly they may never even be married. It's about trying to find a way forward for future arrangements for the child children. But there are also other areas which I often do work in and arguably are there's more expertise needed, I would suggest, for example, internal relocation of children. Say, for example, say parents move to London after university, have children, get to maybe their early 40s, the marriage isn't working, they divorce and mum or dad take the view that they want to move back up to, I don't know, Manchester, the Lakes or wherever else, you know, dealing with those issues, scaling that up on an international level, I've done international relocation work, parents wanting to move cross-jurisdiction. So that's the more expertise I guess you need. Plan and preparation is key in those kinds of cases. I was only saying it to a barrister a couple of weeks ago, that the way to succeed in those cases or to give yourself the best chances to plan and prepare. And in many ways, the same is true to some extent with abduction work, which is another area that I deal in on private law children work, parents who predominantly have abducted their children, at least in a legal sense. I guess it's quite an inflammatory emotional word. I'm not sure if they would see it like that, but but that's certainly the legal phrasing. And that stuff is always really very interesting. On the other hand, financial work in the broadest sense, but divorce and dissolution, financial consequences of relationship breakdown. So who stays at the matrimonial home? Who takes the holiday home? Do both parties work? Is there a disparity in income? Uh, is there a disparity in pension? You know, so they're trying to calibrate all of these things and try and resolve issues. Ideally, without going to court, it depends on the personalities in the room, so to speak, as to whether that's possible. It's certainly hoped, and I always try and encourage it, but not every case can be resolved without going off to court. Sometimes it is just necessary to focus the minds. But I guess that's a bit of a convoluted answer. But the majority of things to do with children and the majority of things to do with money when people are having difficulties and or separating. It sounds like you're playing a dual role here between marriage counsellor and financial accountant. What is it that attracted you to family law? You know, was it love at first sight or was it a more prolonged journey to finding your way to where you are today? I mean, in all honesty, when I was a student, I thought I wanted to be a sort of international human rights lawyer in many ways. But I always wanted to deal with individuals and solve individual problems. It it never appealed to me to be a corporate lawyer for that reason. I felt in the corporate environment, you would be talking to other people about institutions 
And I was more interested in talking about the personalities and the people and the way forward for the actual person in the room. Family law naturally fits into that. But also it's the fact that two concurrent days, at least, are never the same. I'm sure that's probably true of most lawyers in practice. I, I accept that. But I like the subject matter. That probably sounds strange to someone listening because obviously the majority of people are coming to me when they've got a problem. You know, I'm a a litigator at heart, but I like the nature of the issue and like trying to put together a plan. It's extremely satisfying to have a client come through the door who genuinely is not quite sure where this is going to go, whatever the legal issue is, and genuinely to strategically think it through from many different angles and then devise a plan and put it into practice. And so I guess once I dropped the international human rights lawyer in the Hague in my sort of late teens, early 20s, once that sort of come and went, I guess the next thing was, well, maybe I could do a little bit of international family work and actually, you know, what's more important than your child? What's more important than the business you've built up for your whole life? You know, clearly there are things that are more important, but in a context as a private client lawyer, there's few things that are more important. I can imagine the work of child custody and divorce is a bit more exciting and a bit more tangible than an M&A deal between company A and company B. And the main legal issue there are X shares are owned by who and need who sign off. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's no criticism of an M&A lawyer. You've got to go in the direction that you feel is right for you. And that's absolutely fine. But for me, I wanted to be able to solve problems or concerns for individuals. That was the driving force for me. And having said that, look, to be honest with you, a disproportionate number of my clients these days are business owners, senior corporate people in the city, etc. You know, the point I'm making is they often bring that to the table anyway. So family law is not devoid of business and having to think commercially. It's just you're looking at it from the sort of personal purse strings, if you like, and the personal perspective instead of scaling it up in a corporate environment. And again, I like that. I like it because one of the things I think most family lawyers will say is they like to create and assist and develop personal relationships with people. By the end of divorce and financial issues and possibly if there's children issues, if you've got it about right and your advice is being solid and you've got a good outcome for the client, it's a peculiar bond because, of course, by the end of it, really, the majority of clients will want to get on with the rest of their lives, but they'll never forget that time. And it's a, it's a real privilege that actually sounds a bit corny, but it's true. It's a privilege to be the person at that point in their life who they come to and who they look to for support. You know, you said a couple of minutes ago about being a sort of accountant and a counsellor. There's a lot of truth in that. But actually that fusion is a real privilege. It really, really is. Because what tends to happen is people will be a lot more emotional and not quite clear on what the future looks like when you first meet them. But it is brilliant. It really is to navigate that process with them, if you like. And I've had clients at the end, you know, where we go for a glass of wine and dinner at the end of it. They're a different person. You know, they're great. They've got something about themselves that maybe they didn't have in the room at the first appointment. And it's a massive privilege. Yeah, it really is, actually. That's amazing. 
Now, I've got two questions based on how you started, which I found quite interesting. One is this transition between wanting to be the international human rights lawyer in The Hague, bringing to court the most egregious violations. And then the second part about the practical interest and the problem-solving ability. Now, I saw that you did your undergrad at York, and York has risen into prominence, especially based on its problem-based learning model, this PBL, this practical model. And so I feel that these two kind of avenues would be interesting to explore. So why don't we start off with the international human rights and then we can transition to the PBL? Well, I mean, in terms of the international human rights, you're right. I did my undergraduate degree at the law school in York, but then subsequently did an LLM in international human rights law. So I stayed in York, but in a different department at the Centre for Applied Human Rights. So actually, even the Centre for Applied Human Rights, by its own name, was trying to give some practicality to the study of human rights. So I guess York is very good at that, or at least I've been ever so grateful for what it's given me really in that sense. In terms of problem-based learning, actually, that was one of the main reasons I went to York at the time, because I wanted to try and differentiate myself. And much as we all will try to differentiate ourselves, it is very hard, particularly when you're starting out and you're not quite sure what the journey looks like. So there's something of value there because the problem-based learning, in a nutshell, you would mimic a law firm week to week. So you would have a legal problem, you would be in groups as students, and you would be tasked with a set of questions based on a factual situation, and you would return a week later and give out or explain amongst yourselves what all of your respective research looked like. And I think actually on reflection, that was really invaluable for what we do now. And particularly when I see younger people coming through, or at least junior people coming through, sometimes that's one of the things that they really need to try and grapple with early on and cut through this idea that you need to be practical. You can have all of the skills in terms of intellectual knowledge, but you need to be able to apply it in a constructive way that gets an output for a client. Some clients will want perfected, incredibly detailed intellectual letters, but the vast majority of clients just want to know what the product of that letter is going to be. And so the content is for you, but you don't have to get too bogged down in it. So I guess the problem-based learning point that you raise is an interesting one. I think it's invaluable. I think that's a massive thing that we all need to get to do more of and move away from over-theorizing things. Having said that, going back to my practice area now, what I will say is, even though I'm not an international human rights lawyer at The Hague, it's an interesting time in practice and in terms of lecturing and writing papers, of course, because actually human rights law is pervasive. And so it is something that you can grab onto depending on your perspective anywhere. So it's just finding the relevant cases, finding the relevant legal issues where you can sort of fuse together theory and practice. That's the key, I think. So kind of finding your niche then. The idea is that you didn't have to completely abandon your international human rights passion or 17-year-old you, but you were able to kind of find it in some aspect, even in your job today. Yes, I would, I would say so. I mean, the reality of it is it's not going to be easy. In, in many ways, I'm extremely fortunate. I don't feel like an international human rights lawyer, clearly, but I look at my practice through the human rights lens and often with international work, particularly the international children work, that can make all the difference. We may or may not get onto it, but my LLM in international human rights law, I can think of a couple of cases where my approach to the case, I think, was based on what I'd learned and thought during that time. And it differentiated us from the other party. 
because of course it's not a prerequisite to be a lawyer to have a master's degree or indeed to have it in human rights law. So human rights law is pervasive, it's everywhere if you look for it, so to speak. And I like the fusion. Family law gives you that, particularly through children law, I would say. And just on that point about your LLM, international human rights law, and how not everyone needs to have one, I think a lot of people that I've talked to, one of their major fears is that law firms in general, they're not that interested in an LLM. I mean, the stereotype is, you know, law firms are there, they want young blood. And so the fact that you've done an LLM, no matter how specialized in their practice area, is just a turnoff or it isn't an extra advantage. But then on the other hand as well, an LLM is a nice way to fill up a year, say, do you not have a a TC getting out of university? Yet it's also a significant investment. So what would you say to people who are entertaining the idea of doing an LLM? I think there's a couple of points. I mean, I should disclose, I completely agree with you. It's a heavy financial burden to do it. I should disclose that I was very, very fortunate and obtained a scholarship for it. So if I hadn't have obtained the scholarship for it, would I have done it? I'm not 100% sure because it would have been, what, 10, 15,000 pounds to do it. And there's got to be a question mark. That's a significant amount of money. So I was very, very fortunate. And again, I go back to what I said earlier on. I'm indebted to the University of York who sort of showered me with scholarships for a few years and I am forever grateful for that. So I guess point one is look out for scholarships. There's not many of them, but maybe that's your way in, you know. But beyond that, again, might sound a little bit tweed to some people. It is genuinely how I feel about it. An LLM is such a great opportunity to explore a practice area or just an area of interest. I've never had anybody criticise or critique me for doing it in a detrimental way, but I can understand the anxiety someone may feel thinking, well, is that the best use of a year of my time? Is that the best use of a proportion of the resources financially that they have to get into the profession, if you see what I'm saying? But you know what? You can't take it away from you once you've got it. It's there forever. It's a bit like your undergraduate. You've got it forever. You know, we're all working longer and you don't know what your career direction is going to be overall. And also, you know what, let me say this, one of the most rewarding things about doing the LLM, quite apart from the rigour of it and the privilege of doing it really, because it was just fascinating, the whole thing, the whole year, but the reason I would advocate doing an LLM per se, I wouldn't say it's for everybody, is it is a way of showing potential employers who you really are. Because if you've got it like me through a scholarship, fair enough, you know, that's frankly, that's an opportunity to talk about the scholarship in in an interview, you know, let's be honest about it. But also, even if you haven't, it's an opportunity to explore in an interview setting or in an application something more about your identity. That's my point. You know, when I applied to Owen Mitchell, at the time when I got my training contract, I hadn't actually started the LLM, but I knew I was going to do it. And so I was able to talk about it. And the interviewer from memory was a complex personal injury lawyer, but it gave us something to talk about. And if you've got that ability to have a conversation where in the moment you can tell that the other person you're speaking to means what they're saying, in some ways, from a recruitment point of view, that's half the battle. Being able to show to a potential employer who you are a little bit, and what drives you and what you're interested in is far more interesting and you'll be far more memorable than somebody who has ticked lots of boxes, but are they able in a conversation to articulate something more personal about who they are? So then the LLM is essentially a personal choice, an experience that you have obviously found advantageous towards career, but also personal development. But at the same time, it's not something that's per se detrimental or advantageous. It's more 
an exploration of your personal identity, your interest in law and kind of who you are? Yes. The reality of it is no one is going to criticize you for having done an LLM or not having done an LLM. I think my overarching point is if you're looking to enter into the profession, there's so many ways of doing it. They're all valid routes. But be mindful of the fact that, in my opinion anyway, a lot of prospective employers will look at your CV. It's a prerequisite that you're bright and intelligent and you've done a lot of what's required. So think about ways to differentiate yourself is all I'm saying. I appreciate an LLM is a pretty elaborate way of doing it. I I hold my hands up, you know, would I have done it if I didn't have the scholarship? I'm not sure I would have. But the truth of it is it gives you an angle for a conversation and it gives you a way of showing who you really are. You trust me, you'll not do an LLM that you're not interested in. Or if you do, it'll be a pretty miserable time. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah, definitely. If, if you're stuck a year at a master's level doing a subject that you have no passion for, that is that is quite the predicament. It's going to be a long year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So now let's transition to the juicy stuff, talking about family law and all this international work and most child abduction. Give us a sense of what your day-to-day looks like. What is it that you do as a family law lawyer? I guess the first thing to say is it's changed quite a bit in recent months as a consequence of COVID. But let's try and fuse the old with the new and say what's going on now, if you like. Clearly, it used to involve a commute. (laughs) That no no longer is there, thankfully. Uh, I must say I'm enjoying that. But in terms of the real substance of the day, look, it can be 101 different things, but it is usually drafting up correspondence for clients to approve or drafting up advice on next stages of a case. It's speaking to barristers and solicitors, whether they're, well, your barrister in terms of who you've instructed and or solicitors on the other side of cases to try and move it forward. It can often be taking calls from contacts out of the blue and having to suddenly rearrange your diary because there's a new case coming in and actually we do have to drop pretty much everything to convert the case. You know, you want to give the right impression to the client or the prospective client. So sometimes it's rejigging your diary. A lot of the day is spent advising clients on what you're going to do next or their options. And then once they've decided what they want to do and how they want to do it based on advice, putting it into practice, that's what a lot of it is. Increasingly, when I am involved in more complicated or elongated litigation, so litigation where you know it's going to run to a contested final hearing, requires reviewing case law, everything you do. I was just about to try and give you a sort of list, but everything you do. So it's not just reading case law and drafting letters, you know, in those cases, it's everything. Everything you do, you have to sort of take a step back and say, what are we trying to achieve here? Is this going to help or hinder? And if it hinders, don't do it. If it helps, do it. And if you can't define it, it's probably not going to help. So don't do it. (laughs) If you can't work out for yourself whether what you're about to do is going to help your client, you need to stop So, you know, that's a typical day. I guess increasingly now with COVID, there's a lot more Zoom calls. In some ways, client service has arguably got better. We used to say, oh, do you want to come in next week? Maybe come in on your lunch break or maybe come in late after work. Now, of course, it's we can do a Skype, we can do a Zoom for 20, 30 minutes. So there's a lot more actually face-to-face involvement with clients. Because if you're going to telephone a client, why not Zoom them? You know, why not? It enhances the client service. In my view, at least it doesn't. It allows you to build up rapport. Massive part of practice in family law, probably true of all areas, is building up rapport. You need your client to understand you, see the way you speak, see who you are, 
your style, your personality, because you're regularly asking them to make decisions based on your advice. They've got to trust you. And I think actually face-to-face contact, or at least visually face-to-face, even if you're in different cities or different parts of the world, is so much more powerful than a telephone call. So I'm increasingly seeing clients a lot more often on Zoom calls and whatnot. I should say briefly, also just with you bringing up abduction work, Don't get me wrong, I do quite a bit of it, but I certainly can't at the moment make a full career out of it. If you see what I'm saying, you know, you might get, say, two, three, four of those a year. But if they come in, again, you drop everything. It's so quick. There's so much going on. There's such a lot of pressure immediately because of the tight time scales. So what I've just described might be a usual day until an abduction comes in. And then it's a case of, okay... We need to order some food here and um, <laughs> evening plans are sort of out of the window. Let's order some food, sit down. And- Pull up the old sleeves and do an all-nighter. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Something like that. But uh, I try to avoid that if possible. But certainly in family work, it can happen quite a bit. You can just randomly find yourself suddenly extremely busy because of something that has happened sort of out of the blue. Just a wrecking ball coming through, yes. destroying your perfectly organized week, your perfectly organized month. <laughs> Indeed, no, absolutely. But I think you work out very quickly. That's what it's like. And in some ways, that's the reward. Goes back to what I was saying before. If someone's in a completely awful situation and they don't know where to turn, yes, that's frustrating to some extent if you've got a nice evening planned or whatnot. You know, we're all human. Let's not pretend that's not true. But also it's a great privilege because you're the person that's going to take them through it. I genuinely mean that. That's the reward. <laughs> Just on that point about building a rapport with your clients, and surely that must be a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that obviously you get to know your clients more in depth. You get to see their personalities. You get to help them with very personal matters as well. But then how do you handle the cases that go very sour on your side? How do you deal with the emotional blowback? Especially say, if you're dealing with one of these for a year international child abduction cases or child custody cases, and it turns out that you lost and uh, your client is worse off. How do you get home at the end of the night and say, all right, going to go to bed, take up the next morning, start a day afresh? Because at least with the corporate world, you know, you're dealing with fictitious legal identities. But here you're dealing, as you're saying, with real people with real personal issues who turn to you at their darkest hour. There's no easy answer to this in that I think probably the PC answer is to say, you know, objectively we work and then you turn off your laptop and that's the end of the day. But I'm not convinced by that in reality. You do consider the cases long into the evening, even if you have turned off your laptop, or certainly I do. And I wouldn't criticise any other lawyer who said that. You know, I know there's a big move towards work-life balance and this sort of sense of trying to sort of leave work at the door, as it were, and I completely am supportive of that. Gosh, I am. But it's very hard to do. I think you've got to ground your client in reality. That's what I would say. So if you think that your case is finally balanced, tell them. Tell them early on it's finely balanced and give them a way to maximize their potential for success. If you've got an absolutely brilliant case, you know it. But frankly, very rarely is it like that. It's often usually 55, 45 in terms of percentage one way or the other. Sometimes in litigation, you can feel at one point it sort of swaps around. And so often, depending on where you're at, you can feel one week as if you're in control of the litigation or that you're driving it. And then you might feel on the back foot for whatever reason. You've got to acknowledge that. What I try and do is be very honest with the clients early on. If their case is finally balanced, I'll say that. 
you know, I only had a case a couple of weeks ago where it's very, very finely balanced and brought in a barrister quite early on and said, look, I know this is finely balanced. We need to create a sort of legal team. I'll often say that to a client. We need an early legal team. You need to meet the barrister before we go to court because he or she needs to know who you are, assess your personality and bring in their knowledge as well. So I'm a big fan of bringing in a barrister early on those really demanding cases because it helps the client. In terms of inverted commas, how do you sleep at night when you've got lots of pain and, <laughs> and, and concerns and worries? You know what? I could say to you very easily and make light half of it. But the truth of it is, sometimes it's just really difficult. Sometimes it is difficult. Even speaking to you now, I can think of a number of clients who are on my mind. And I know that's not sort of trendy. I know that's not great. And I wish I wasn't like that in some ways. But I'm not sure if I do. You know, I think... For me, you've got to sort of be at that level and you've got to have that kind of involvement and that longing to assist and support the client to be able to sometimes drive the case. If it's a finely balanced litigation, which most cases are, it's going to come down to the finer detail. So, yes, you do have to switch off and spend time with friends and family and whatnot. Of course you do. And everyone should be able to do that. But what I'm trying to get at is sometimes it will be all consuming. That's the job. The trick is when it's all consuming, to embrace it and go, this is one of those evenings. Like what I was saying a couple of minutes ago, oh, this new case has come in. The next three, four days of the working week are just going to be slightly ridiculous. and going to be working extremely long hours, but actually embrace it. That's why you did it. That's the point. Then in a couple of weeks, if it slightly murmurs down, turn your laptop off, go for dinner, go and see your friends. That's how I do it anyway. I tend to have periods of very, very busy and I'm really involved in the case. But I think that's what you need to do. If I heard somebody being interviewed by you who didn't say that, I'd think "Mm, they're just saying that because they know that that's what they're supposed to say. The truth of it is most of the best lawyers I know really, really get into it and really, really want to pull the case apart and think about it. And it is very close to being very consuming. But sometimes that's where it happens. Sometimes that late night call with counsel or reviewing documents, you know, not to over-dramatise it, but sometimes that's what's needed, you know. so That's the aha moment. That's where it all you know, makes sense. It breaks the case. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. And yet you still have the time to become quite the academic, aside from what's already sounds like a quite volatile and and hectic work schedule. You still find the time to become a lecturer and also write some papers. I mean, that must be quite amazing in the sense that you have your toes dipped in both the theoretical and the practical, but how on earth do you manage it? Good question. No, um, I mean, look, I always wanted to do writing and lectures, I guess. When I started at Owen Mitchell, I had been doing some ad hoc lecturing and sort of legal theory the year before in the law school in York. And I sort of gave it up for a couple of years, to be honest, apart from also wanting to be an international human rights lawyer, I thought I might be an academic. So I've always been interested in it. But for me, I think you can't do one without the other. But I accept that the majority of practitioners don't take that view. And that's absolutely fine. But I think Being a lawyer in practice is such a privilege in terms of your ability to influence your discipline. (laughs) You know, and for me, I think once you've got a platform and once you've got some developed expertise, not saying everybody should start writing papers, because then I'd not get anything published. (laughs) (laughs) Hold off on your legal academia just yet. Give me some headway. Let me get a couple of articles published and then you guys can all like swarm on the journey. It is busy. I can't deny that. I guess that is true. But I do a lot of the writing around the intersection, I guess, between sort of human rights law and family law work. So it comes back to my practice, it informs my practice. 
a lot of that human rights stuff is around same-sex families, same-sex children law and whatnot. So I do do quite a lot of writing on those sorts of issues and sort of what people are starting to call modern family law. People are calling it different things. Modern family law, same-sex family law, LGBT plus family law. You know, it's all quite similar stuff, I guess, from my perspective. But I enjoy it and I really like engaging with people about the issues, you know. So I did a lecture at Queen Mary University in London in February, March this year for LGBT History Month. I can't remember the exact title, but I think the title was something along the lines of LGBT family law paradoxes in policy and procedure, something like that. But we got into a really interesting debate on the floor about trans parents, gender non-conforming children, for example. And I think it goes back to what I was saying before. I, I'm very conscious. I, I sound a little bit cliche, but it really comes, it is really genuine this. It's a privilege being invited to give a lecture is a privilege and you should take it because it's an opportunity to disseminate your views and experiences to try and progress things. And by its very nature, the vast majority of the writing and the lecturing that I've done and continue to do is around this intersection between family law and human rights law. I mean, I know it's a conversation for a completely different day, but there is something political about that in some ways because it's human rights law in some ways is the most politicised form of law in some ways. And it's something I enjoy. I've also been very lucky. You know, I said earlier on about the scholarship for the Masters. I make no bones about it. I'm very open with it. There were key moments with papers that were published or little lectures that I did where one thing led to another. You know, it's a bit of a chain reaction, really. But like I say, it's a privilege and it's important. There's not actually lots and lots of practitioners talking about, for example, LGBT family law issues. And so I do a lot of same-sex family work. I sit on the committee at the Law Society. My background is in human rights to some extent. You know, carpe diem. It sounds a bit cliche, but it's true. Come on, let's do it. Let's have a voice in that movement, in that space. Nothing makes me more enthusiastic about doing that than, for example, when you've got those cases and you see the other side and you think, okay, these people are in a civil partnership, so they're not getting divorced. The dissolution of a civil partnership or for example, in court orders, you know, you see remarried. Well, they were, they've not been married. They're in a civil partnership. You know, it's a female couple, a male couple, you know, small things like that. Or treatment of parents on separation and same-sex family dynamic. These are important things, to me at least, because a lot of other lawyers pick up this sort of heteronormative understanding and try and push it on, <laughs> same-sex family law. And I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right for a start. But also, like I say, you know, if you've got the platform and the position, and I've, I've done a lot of that work, I've researched it, I've taught on it, that's a privilege. You know, you've got, you've got to stand up and do something, if you, you know, for me at least. No, definitely. And I think this goes back to the message you said in the beginning about finding out that your practice area will usually incorporate some elements of other things that you are interested in yes. in their own particular way. So the same way that family law incorporates a lot of international human rights elements and also family law does incorporate a lot of LGBTQ elements as well. So it's the excitement as well that it might have felt, feel free to shut me up if I'm talking bananas, but you know, you might have felt that when you graduated your LLM and were coming into family law, it felt that you were abandoning your international human rights path. But the idea is that you weren't because it came back when you were doing the family law? Yes, I agree. I had to do the bread and butter work, as it were, and learn the trade, if you like, of 
a divorce, a dissolution, financial issues, children issues. What I'm starting to do now, probably in the last 18 months, having done that for a number of years, is try to bring to life the issues that matter to me, at least in the academic realm, in terms of topics that I'm writing about or lecturing about. And actually, one thing you said, you know, there's the interconnection between human rights law and international children law. There is an argument to some extent that that isn't the case. But the point is, I think it should be like that. You know, so if you have a conference with counsel on an international case involving children, they might refer to, I don't know, European Convention on Human Rights or the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And you might have a conference saying, will a high court judge really buy into that? Well, I want to mainstream that because I believe in those institutions and I believe in those soft laws or whatnot, you know. But I do agree with you, although I maybe haven't seen myself like that until you've posed the question. I guess when you start out, you've got to learn your art or you've got to start to learn your art in its simplest form. At the end of the day, law firms or businesses, clients need high quality service. But what I would say is I've been very fortunate, but also Erwin Mitchell have been very good, I would say because they could see that that was something I was interested in doing and they really encouraged me and gave me the opportunity to explore that. And now that's sort of in some ways, if I am known by anybody, that's sort of what I am known for to some extent. So whatever your longer term aim in terms of what you want to practice, sometimes you can't go straight from the sort of classroom lecture hall straight into I want to do, you know, international children law for example, or the biggest merger and acquisition or whatnot. Sometimes you've got to sort of strategically think, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And once I've done those things, I'll have a bit more credibility and experience to be able to develop the other things. And I guess to some extent, being honest, that's where I'm sort of at in my career now. For me, I feel like I'm in that space where I've got enough of a track record to be trusted to develop it further in my own ways. And it seems to be going well at the moment. I'm always conscious when people sort of compliment themselves, it doesn't go down very well. So (laughs) don't misunderstand that. I'm not sitting here patting myself on the back, quite the opposite. But it is coming together or has come together at the moment, as I would have hoped, so much as is possible at this stage. And that's fantastic. You're talking about doing the bread and butter, doing X, Y, Z in order to get into a position where you are working on the things that both from a theoretical and a practical perspective that you are interested in and kind of incorporating them. I think it speaks volumes about not only the intersectionality between family law and other disciplines, but also about bringing your identity to the legal profession or as a lawyer. That's what you've got to do. It's not for everybody and that's okay. That's absolutely fine. But for me, that was a massive part of being in the profession. Maybe I've only discovered it in recent years. I mean, look, I wasn't sitting in a lecture hall at 20. You know, I need to write and lecture and uh, (laughs) do things like this to push views and thoughts and disseminate where you're at. You know, if only it were as coherent as that, I, I could assure you it wasn't. But I do think that you're given a great platform I'm at a big full service national firm, very well known, pretty much batting at the highest level in pretty much the vast majority of areas that we work in, certainly in a family law context, for sure. It's a massive privilege. He says again, I've said that about five times now. (laughs) You've got to use your platform, for me anyway. I think I said earlier on, I did my undergraduate degree, I did my master's degree, then I did the LPC. You know, I was extremely fortunate. These were all scholarship based. On reflection, it's quite unbelievable, really, that one scholarship just seemed to flow into another. And, you know, I did the undergraduate degree. I then went and lived abroad in South Korea and did some philosophy and things for a couple of months. That was a scholarship at Seoul National University in South Korea. Came back, finished the degree, did the master's degree, did the LPC, 
The point I'm trying to get at is I am, for me personally, acutely aware of what a lot of hard work and a bit of luck of being in the right place at the right time can generate. And I don't think I could be comfortable in myself if I didn't immediately, now that I've got a platform, or some kind of platform at least, try and give back an influence. That's the whole point for me. For me, I mean, I love the client work. I really do. You know, I think I made that clear earlier on. I'm quite open about it. It gets in your head and you can't stop thinking about it. I'm all right with that. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend it doesn't. But on a more personal level, I just don't think it sits very comfortably with me when you've been given such opportunity and worked hard and developed things. You've got to give back. And if giving back to students, great. If giving back is contributing to the marketplace of ideas, if you like, that's great. But you've got to give back. For me, you can't just log on at nine o'clock, log off at five o'clock and not do anything else. There's too, too many important things beyond that that need to be discussed. But again, I'm conscious that may sound cliche, but it's not meant to be sounding cliche. It's said in the right way. And then I think that's extremely, extremely important. And that leads very naturally to my next question, which is obviously, you know, a lot of our listeners are law students currently in their second and third year and quite uncertain over the future job market, what that looks like. And if you're not going into straight up commercial law, the number of opportunities for other practice areas is more limited or not as highly promoted. So as somebody like yourself, who's had such an amazing journey and has dipped their hands into so many different pies... What would you say to somebody that kind of wants to get into your field or that, that, that is, you know, kind of uncertain as to what their job prospects are going to look like come graduation or come the year after? If I'm honest with you, this always sounds a little bit woolly, but it is true. Try to have the confidence as early as possible to genuinely be authentic. Let me unpack that very briefly. What I mean by that is if you want it, you're going to have to work hard to achieve it. That's true of anything. But in an interview setting or on a CV, covering letter, etc., you know, these cumbersome processes that now prospective trainees are asked to do. I mean, it was always cumbersome. It was cumbersome when I did it. But, you know, the hurdles you're asked to jump over are enormous, really, in my view. But the one thing I would say is try and work out who you are quickly. Because actually, the right firm, the right practice area, etc., it will make more sense if you're able to do that. I remember when I went to Owen Mitchell, I'm not going to name the name of the other firm. I went to another firm. It was an interview, a final interview, and it was hard work. The interviewer made it really tricky, and I didn't feel a great deal of confidence, and I didn't feel a great deal of support, truth be told. I felt backs up against the wall within five minutes. <laughs> now, that might be my perception, and we can park that to one side, but... What I can say is, on the flip, I can remember the same equivalent interview with Erwin Mitchell, and we had a discussion and a debate. It was really lively. It was interesting. And I honestly think one of the main reasons at that stage, how I was able to sort of convert that into a job offer, if you like, is because I'd got to a stage in my own thinking where I... Not saying I knew exactly who I was. I think that's a bit of an existential question for us all. But I was willing to show who I was to the extent that I knew myself in that moment. I was willing to say I'm not really interested in that or I'm very interested in this. Or can I tell you about that? You know, going back to the LLM, he was a complex PI lawyer and I was saying I thought I might be a private client lawyer. And then I was telling him about human rights law. And it didn't really make a great deal of sense on reflection, but it did because I was animated, conversational, enthusiastic. And so don't fall into the trick of thinking that you know what they want. 
most people I've interviewed in recent years, don't get me wrong, we look at the CV, you, you talk through it and all the rest of it. But actually, you want to know who the person is. That's about trying to work out early on who you are, what you're about, and not being worried about saying who you are and what you're about. That's probably the best bit of advice, if you like, or someone trying to enter into the profession. Having said that, I could have gone in a different direction and said, yes, it's very tough. Yes, there's not a great deal of opportunity at the moment per se, but I think it depends where you are in the country and what your practice area is, to be honest with you. It was never going to be easy. It's particularly difficult now, but I think now more than ever, arguably, law firms will be looking, I'm not saying for personality, I don't mean this sort of personality cult, I don't mean that. What I mean is, have the confidence to articulate who you are, that's what I mean, because it will shine through. It's patently obvious when you speak to people, think about it. When you speak to people and you come away from a conversation, whatever the context, and you think, she was quite rude, he was quite rude, Mm, they didn't seem particularly interested. You want to be able to apply to law firms and know who you are to an extent where you go beyond that. That would be my advice. Speechless. I think you hit all the points there. (laughs) What I will say is that's really tough. And it's very easy for me to sit here now, years on, and reflect and say, that's my advice. I don't know whether I thought at the time I was sort of being authentic. It's not that I was consciously not being myself, but I'm not sure at that time when I was applying, I was thinking like that. And I think that lends itself to the whole process of self-discovery as well. You know, you don't know preemptively what lawyer you wanted to be, who you were as a person. I mean, I think what law students don't realize, especially, is that these are kind of the most formative years of your experience as a person, you know, let alone as a, as a lawyer. I think you put it quite well in terms of being authentic, being genuine, but also knowing that that's a rather fluid concept of who you are. and That's apt to change, obviously, as time goes on. Being authentic doesn't mean that you nod your head and say yes to everything. As if somehow you found sitting in this boardroom at this particular law firm, it's perfect. Being authentic is kind of saying, this is, this is interesting. I like this. I'm not sure about that. I like this. This is who I am. This is what I bring to the table. And remember that the, the vast majority of the recruiters in the bigger firms, at least, technically you could have a vacation scheme before you've even got your law degree, depending on when you graduate. The point I'm making is it's there to be had. They're not saying we need a, an undergraduate, a master's degree, five years as a paralegal. They want you at that ripe opportunity. It goes back to what you were saying. They want to cherry pick the people. So give them a reason. Everyone's going to have a first or a two-one or the vast, vast, vast majority. Most people will have gone to, fortunately, different conversation for a different day, a select number of universities. Differentiate yourself by being yourself. Oh, that sounds a little bit cliche as well. That sounds a little <laughs> bit cliche. That's well. a highlight quote. <laughs> but again, it's in the right way. <laughs> so, Scott, at the end of every episode, I love to ask my guests a nice, fun round question to take the edge off and just land on a positive note. I've been asking my interviewers all about their favorite characters and their favorite legal pop culture references. Now, what's your favorite dramatized legal character? I'm hoping it's nothing cliche like Suits of Harvey Specter and and Donna Paulson. No, no, it's not. Although I think most of my friends think that's what my day job is like. But uh, (laughs) I've really tried to tell them it's not. Uh, Not only am I not based in the States, but uh, although I think there's a lot more, there's not really great much similarity, uh, even if I were. Um, I guess for me, I was probably the generation that watched Silk. I don't know if you've heard of Silk. Ooh, yeah, the QC one, right? Yeah, so Silk, it was Maxine Peake, who was, oh, now let me think, I'm saying it's my favourite character, I can't think of her name. Um, Maxine Peake, and basically she was a criminal barrister going up for Silk, and 
Oh, it was just brilliant. Even though I never wanted to be a criminal lawyer. And what's really funny about it is she was the main character, exhausted all of the time, didn't really have a very good work-life balance, <laughs> didn't really have a very good life, to be honest. Martha <laughs> Costello, that was the name of her. Martha Costello. But in some ways, it was the way she suffered for her art that I absolutely loved. We all did. We all did. We were all sort of... I think it was on the television maybe 10 years ago now, but uh, I think all of us just starting out about 10 years ago probably were similarly hooked. She was... Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure now whether or not that was really the best person to <laughs> to answer with because when I think about it now, some of the ridiculous things in that show. But the idea of what she symbolised, I thought, was really good. And uh, she she's my favourite. But I do like watching Suits, but uh, it's a bit too removed from reality to say that it's got any link to, uh, to anything I certainly get up to. No, I think if when you compare a show like Suits with a show like Silk, you know, Suits ends up becoming much less about the law and much more about office romances and petty politics. Whereas Silk, you know, it did us the favor of showing us the brutal life of a barrister. I remember one of the episodes, Martha Costello's understudy was just becoming a, a pupil or a barrister. And he ended up going to one of the shops to buy, you know, the robe and gown. And they told him it was 20, 250 pounds and he ended up kind of running off with it just to avoid the pain. <laughs> I can remember going to a shop like that with my uh, my dad and my stepmom when I was a kid, really young. They took me down to London to sort of look around legal London when I was about 15. Um, so yes, I know the scene you're on about because I remember seeing it and thinking, is that, is that the shop I was in since 12 years ago? <laughs> so, yeah, but but I, I, I suspect that that, uh, well, I hope it doesn't happen anyway. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, all right. Fantastic. And again, thank you so much, Scott, for agreeing to this interview and coming on and sharing all your experiences and your thoughts. If listeners want to reach out to you with some juicy follow-up questions, where, where can they do so? By all means, add me on LinkedIn. It's just Scott Halliday. Well, I'm sure there'll be other Scott Holidays, but hopefully just one at Erwin Mitchell, who does family law. By all means, drop me an email, but my LinkedIn, it's linked up to my mobile. So if you send me a message on LinkedIn, chances are I'll see it. And, and please do, by all means. Particularly, if I may say so, although I think this is possibly going a bit too far, if people want to reach out, particularly interested to hear from sort of first generation students who are at university, also LGBTQ defining law students who want to get into the profession. But if you don't identify along those terms, please don't feel that I won't answer the message, I will. But, I, <laughs> but I must shout out as a sort of LGBT specialist, gay, working class, first generation of my family to attend. I must do that for people who maybe are listening who are in a similar position to what I was, say, 10 years ago. But please get in touch whoever you are. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Scott. Okay, great. Thanks for the invitation. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about family law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Scott. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog post, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute banger of a theme song. If you enjoyed the episode, show us some love. Subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at legalt.uk. Till next time.